0: Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11 this morning, Romans chapter 11, we're going to finish up our study here in Romans 11 and get into Romans 12, let's go ahead and have the uh, do the smart thing and have a word of prayer before we get started. Heavenly Father, we're just thankful to be here this morning. And as always, Lord, just pray that you would teach and we would listen through your spirit. And you would guide and direct in all things. And uh, what a lot of great stuff to talk about this morning. Looking forward to what you have to say. And just pray you just that our name. Amen. We've been working through the book of Romans here for quite some time. And as you've heard me say... Uh, Numerous introductions here, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans is presenting what the gospel is, our need for the gospel, our sinful nature, and Jesus being the only one that can take care of our sins. That's the first eight chapters of Romans. Romans 9, 10, and 11 takes a little bit of a break, and Paul uses the example of Israel. As a group of people that the gospel was presented to, they rejected the gospel. And then how the gospel came to us. And that's what we're going to finish up with today a little bit. Is this idea of the gospel and God's promises that all of Israel would be saved. Finally, in Romans 12 through the rest of the book, this is what I'm excited about. Chapter 12 on is really application. How do we take all this now? put this into practice. It's really great to learn about Israel, it's really great to learn about the gospel, but how do we apply this to our lives and how do we live it? And that's what we're going to do today a little bit. We'll finish up chapter 11 we'll get into chapter 12. So, first things first, let's pick up where we left off last week, which is verse 29 of Romans 11. For the gifts and the calling of God were irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. We'll come back and we'll talk about that. But the first things first, that idea of being irrevocable, unchanging, doesn't change. Some of you good old King Jamesers out there have something along the line of God does not repent. That kind of throws people for a loop a little bit, because they hear that word repent, we always think of repent as, I have done something wrong, which that's the context we use it in a lot. When we repent, you're basically saying, I've done something wrong, and I'm going to change, I'm going to go the opposite direction. So when the Bible and the King James uses that word repent, what it's really saying is God doesn't change. And so what's saying right here is that God has not repented of this. He's not going to change his opinion on this. His opinion on what? Verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God. Well, in the context here of Romans 11, he's talking about Israel. God has said, I love Israel, I love the Jews, the gospel has gone out to them, and they will eventually be saved. Even though they may not be saved now, they may be rejecting the gospel, they eventually will be. And God says, my opinion on that hasn't changed. Well, amen to that. But for us, how does it apply to us? Well, think about the gifts and the calling of God that's come your way. And I was kind of going through this message, I started thinking about the different promises that God has given us that haven't changed. Because sometimes in the middle of dark times in life, we start thinking things have changed a little bit. Think about this. I just wrote down three quick ones, the first three that came to my mind. There's many promises throughout the Bible. Romans 8, 28 is the first one that came to my mind. For God works for the good in all things for those that are called according to his purposes. And we talked about that. If you're born again and saved, God is working good in your life, and no matter what comes your way, the Lord is going to use that for a bigger good. You may not see that bigger good at this moment. You may not see that bigger purpose at this moment, but God promises you, I will use that for something bigger later on. That is a promise. So the next time you're facing a very difficult, dark time in your life, and you're saying, Lord, I see no good in this situation right now, cling to the promise that God says, I won't use this for good. Next one, Hebrews 13, 5. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's an amazing promise. When the whole world has left you down, When you're the only one left, no one else cares, no one else understands. Aren't you thankful that Christ himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? That's a promise. And the last one, and this is the one I brought up because we've been going through Revelation on Wednesday nights, Revelation 21.4, "He will wipe away every tear from your eye. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more curse. What an amazing promise. Now those are promises. So when you're going through a tough time in life, Some of you may be going through a tough time right now. You may have walked into this building with a burden on your heart. Some of you may be having a great moment right now and not to be a downer, but you're going to run into a difficult time. It's a fact. When that happens, you've got to cling to these promises. God says, as a born-again Christian, whatever happens in my life, he'll use it for good. God says he'll never leave me nor forsake me. God says he'll wipe away every tear from my eye. Those are promises. Now, the problem is too often in life we base our life on feelings and not the facts and truth of Scripture. And so, therefore, since we're basing our life on feelings, well, I don't feel God. I don't feel that He's listening to me. I don't feel that He answered my prayer. I don't feel that He's there. You have to let go of those feelings and focus on the truth and the facts. If you base your life on feelings, you're going to have the biggest roller coaster ride of spirituality you've ever seen. Some days God is good. Oh, no, today's God is bad. Oh, God's good again today. No, the facts of Scripture are this they're unchanging. God loves you, He has a plan for you, He has a purpose for you, He never leaves you, He never forsakes you. Those are facts, those are truth, that is what you cling to. And when you cling to that, you will let go of the emotional side and you say, okay, Lord, even though I don't see the big picture right now, I trust you. Just like when Paul was writing this, just even right now today. Israel's going to be saved? Israel? Israel for having a supposed religious background is one of the most godless nations in the world. They're going to come to know Christ? Yeah, why? Because God promised it. And his promises don't change. This is one of the neat things about God's promises. Look at verses 30 through 32. He proves it in us. Now, depending on your translation, my I, I have New King James, look in verses 30 through 32. Look at the repeated words. Verse 30, you were once disobedient. Disobedience, verse 30. Verse 31, being disobedient. Verse 32, disobedience. God used the word disobedience or disobedient four times in three verses. As we've said out here numerous times, any time you see a word repeated again and again, it's not because God is not good at public speaking. He's repeating it for a reason. And as he uses the words disobedience and disobedient, look what else he uses. Verse 30, mercy. Verse 31, mercy. Mercy again, verse 31. And verse 32, mercy. If you're counting it up, four disobedience four mercies. Now, I like that because I'm disobedient. I need mercy. Now, depending on your translation, some of your translations may have the word unbelief instead of disobedient, may have the word rebel. It's still the same word, disobedient and mercy. Guys, we're a disobedient people. We're sinners. That was the first eight chapters of Romans. We're sinners. Why does God have to spend eight chapters to prove the point that we're sinners? Because we don't think we're all that bad, do we? I mean, there's bad people out there, but I'm not like them. I mean, come on, those are the bad ones. And the problem here that we have is that we don't put ourselves all in the same boat. We're all disobedient. We all need mercy. One of the ongoing themes here in Romans has been this idea that there's nothing in us that is good. The only good in us is through Jesus Christ. And one of the ongoing themes has been this idea that Jesus died for us when there was nothing in us that was redeemable. Too often we have this mindset of, well, Jesus died for me, and he used me because he knew I was the only one that could... Fulfill this ministry. Fulfill this calling. Do this purpose out at church. He saw something in me that was redeemable, and that's why he died. There was nothing redeemable in you. You were disobedient. I was disobedient. We needed mercy. That's one of the ongoing points here that God is trying to say is we're just disobedient sinners from an early age. There's just sin. We were driving home from Toledo yesterday, and as we were driving home, Kenan and Layden, Kenan who's three, Layden is two, sit beside each other in the vehicle. And as we're coming home, they have tendencies sometimes to get on each other. And so Kenan was getting worked up and getting upset. He said, "Layden's calling me names. That's what he's saying. I said, what is he calling you? He's calling me names. Now, Kenan, you have to understand with Kenan, he hates being called anything other than Kenan. And the nickname we've given him is, is Pygmy. And there's a reason for that. Because when he was little, he climbed over everything, he chewed over everything, and he's like a pygmy goat. That's why you don't have to understand it, just come into Irvin world for a second. So he likes being called Kenan or Pygmy. If you go up and ask Kenan what's your name, he'll say Kenan Irvin Pygmy. That's what he thinks. He doesn't like to be called anything else. Now, the other boys, you can call them other things, they think it's funny. Somebody one time called Kenan Kevin, and that just bugged him. So now if the boys want to get at Kenan, they just call him Kevin, and they can just really upset him. So... Layden is calling me names. So well, what is he calling you? He's calling me names. He's still calling me names. Well, what, na- what is he calling you? He's calling me names. So we actually get to the point of where we slow the vehicle down to stop and turn around to see what's going on because I'm saying, what's he calling He's calling me names. So I turn around and I look. Layden is literally pointing at Kenan just saying, names, names, names. <laughs> Kenan is too. He's not smart enough to think of an insult. But there's enough sin in him. He just calls him names. So he literally was calling him names. That's sin nature. That's in us from birth. It's in us as adults. We do things that are disobedient. And so since we do things that are disobedient, we need mercy. Just jump back. You don't even have to turn back. It's just a couple, one chapter ago. Romans 10:21 says, "All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people." That's, that's what Christ did on the cross. He stretched his hand out to us sinners. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not say, you know what? I could really use James. There's this little sin problem, so I'll just die because there's this element of James I really want. There's a value in him. No, there was nothing in me. I'm disobedient. And he still stretched his hand out to me and said, I love you enough to die for you. I'm a disobedient person That he still shows mercy to. Let's build on this one more point. Can you turn to Titus chapter 3 please? Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. There's about four verses here that just so wonderfully sums up this point in this gospel message. Titus 3. Titus 3. Let's go ahead and start here in verse 3. Look at the description that God gives us. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's our background. Look how God chooses to describe us. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving our lust, pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. There's nothing good in us. Nothing. That's who he died for. Verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, nothing in us which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Look at this. Verse 3. There's nothing in us. Verse 4, God just loves us. Verse 5, not by what I've done, not by works of righteousness. I have to stress this point to you. And you may say, okay, James, I got it. You may get it, but someone else in here may not get it. There's nothing in you that's redeemable. And, And this is not trying to kick you while you're down. This is trying to show how much God loves you. And it is also to show us how much really isn't on our shoulders. As I've shared with you before, it's very freeing to realize It's not nothing to do with me. It's all the Lord. It's all what Christ did. How did he do it? Verse 6, he poured out on us abundantly. He washed us and saved us abundantly. And boy, did we need to be scrubbed again and again and again. That's the purpose here that Paul is trying to tell us. We're disobedient people that needs mercy. And so therefore, he's trying to make a point. What's the point that he's trying to make? Jump ahead to verse 33 now of Romans 11. Look at his point now. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. See, a lot of times we look at verse 33 and we talk about how it's a wonderful passage. The depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, he's unsearchable. I've heard people teach on this and I love these messages. They talk about creation and they talk about how big God is and how little we are. And I love those type of messages. I love looking out at the stars at night. And, and at night, if you look over here to the west, you can see Jupiter, you can see Venus, and you can stop and you can think, wow, we're just this tiny little planet and this big thing. And I look at verse 33, Lord, your wisdom, your knowledge is unsearchable. Okay, that's all true. Do you realize what the context of verse 33 is? The context is we are such disobedient, horrible sinners. How unsearchable is it that God would die for us? That's the context of Verse 33 that it's beyond belief that Christ would go to the cross for us. It doesn't make any sense. And what happens is we try to make sense by it by what? Well, I'm the only one that could reach my community. That's why Jesus died for me. I'm the only one in my family that could be a light and a witness. That's why Christ died for me. No, it's not. See, that would give you a reason and a purpose of why He died for you. The truth of the matter is it's unsearchable. What did He see in you? What did He see in me? I don't know. It's unsearchable. That's grace. That's mercy. That's love. And to think... That he was willing to do that for us? Oh my goodness, that's unbelievable. Because once again, when you look at the description that God gives of us, it's really not a great description. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren. Listen to the description. Not many wise. I'm not wise. According to the flesh, not many mighty. I'm definitely not mighty. Not many noble. Not noble are called. What has God chosen? God has chosen the foolish. Things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Listen to the description that your loving Heavenly Father describes you as. You are not wise. You're not mighty. You're not noble. You're foolish. You're shameful. You're weak and you're debased. That's how God sees you. He still died for you. See, that's what's unsearchable. That's what's unbelievable. Now, why does he describe us like that? Because it takes us to the next verse, verse 29 in 1 Corinthians 1, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God says, the reason you can see that there's nothing in you because there's not a single redeemable quality in you. So therefore, you can't have pride about anything. I see lots of Christians that love the Lord and serve the Lord faithfully and strongly. But they still think they bring something to the table. No, it's only through the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Only through him. See, we're a sheep. The Bible calls us lambs and sheep. I've shared this with you before. I grew up on a farm. We grew up with sheep. And I've said to you before, I think lambs are the cutest baby animal I've ever seen. Of all the baby animals, I still think to this day there's nothing cuter than a baby lamb. Just that, that soft uh, wool, just that little bag they have. They're adorable. And that's what I like to look at when I think of how much God loves me, as I'm this adorable little lamb. But also growing up with sheep, I can attest to this. Sheep are the stupidest animals in the world. So God thinks you're adorable, but he also says, you know what, you're kind of dumb. (laughs) So it's a backhanded compliment. That's the cutest dumb animal I've ever seen in my life. That's the way the Lord looks at us. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm foolish. I'm not noble. I'm not mighty. I'm weak. And Jesus still says, I died on the cross for you. That's unsearchable. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to say, Lord, why? Why do you do that? It goes back to Isaiah 55, a verse that I love. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, I'm above you. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. We're not going to see eye to eye on things. I'm God. You're not. Haven't you ever had those times in your life spiritually where you're saying, Lord, this doesn't make sense. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? This makes no sense. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Yeah, but Lord, come on. What good is going to come out of this? He's above. He sees the big picture. So what do we do? Well, go back to Romans 11, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? What a silly thought, right? That we're going to counsel God we're going to give him advice, but let's be honest, we all do it, don't we? I've done it before, you know, but I really think this is what we should do. I, I, you know, I look at the situation, I really seem like this is a great place for us to move, and, and, and Lord, I really want us to move in this area here as a ministry, and uh, Lord, I really think we should do this. He's not asking for my opinion. He's not asking for my counsel. And a lot of our prayers then turn into what I call rubber stamp prayers. Lord, this is the job I really want, and I ask for your blessing upon it and your favor upon it. This job would be perfect for me. In your name I pray this, Amen. Lord, this house, this is the house we've always wanted. I ask that you would give this to us. In your name, amen. Lord, this is the girl. This is the girl. I've always wanted to work this out. We're giving counsel to God. He's above us. He sees the big picture. He knows the damage that girl will do or that guy will do. He knows the damage that that job will do or that move will do. He knows the damage of it because he is above us. We were looking at animals a while ago, and we had the kids, and, and the window to look at the, the cats was probably about, oh, yay, high. And so we we're looking at them, and there's this huge, huge cat. I mean, like, something I don't know was wrong. It was huge. So Dawn and I are looking at this thing saying, this thing is unbelievable. And one of the kids, and I can't remember who it was, uh, claimed up and down that it's not in there. Well, yeah, it's right there. We can see it. It's not in there. Why? Well, because their little head couldn't see it. As soon as you pick them up and they look at it from our perspective, they can see the cat. The reason I bring that up is how many times do we sit there and say, Lord, this doesn't make sense. Why? Because we're looking at it from a two-year-old, three-year-old mentality. God up in heaven says, I see the big picture. It makes sense. No, it doesn't, Lord. It doesn't make sense. We give counsel to God. We get frustrated because our prayers aren't answered. We get frustrated because situations don't work out the way we want. We get frustrated because things just don't work out the way I want for me. I never get that job. I never get that thing. I never get this. Because maybe the Lord says and knows that he needs to say no to it. His ways are unsearchable. It's not our place to give counsel to God. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible deals with this in the book of Job. And for 37 chapters, God allows Job and his three little friends there to think they got it all figured out. And so for 37 chapters, if you've ever read Job, everybody knows about Job, but until you read Job, you don't realize how long of a book Job is. For 30 plus chapters, Job and his friends just spout out philosophically about life. And they think they got it all figured out. Finally, in Job 38, God comes on the scene. And for basically two chapters he's straight, he just asks questions. He goes, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I placed the stars in the sky? Where were you when I put the water? And finally, when God gets done with his speech, Job basically says, I repent, I repent, I repent. Who am I to question anything? And this is what happens. We sit here in our bedrooms at night, at our kitchen tables, and our drives on the way to work, and we figure life So therefore then we counsel God on what needs to be done. Oh my goodness You realize how silly that is we'll be driving sometime, someplace with the kids and one of the boys may think they know Where we're going and so we'll be heading to grandma's house or to church or to town or Bowling Green or something And be like dad. I think we need to turn here. We have no idea dad I know this is where we turn isn't it? No, we need to head north You want us to go south? I don't expect the two-year-old the three-year-old the five-year-old the six-year-old to get to me to where I need to go but yet, when we have that spiritual mentality sometimes, we're like, Lord, I want to direct my life. No, you don't. We have to trust the Lord. Why? Because look at verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's all about him. It's, do you see the point he's making in verse 36? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom all the glory forever. It's all about him. There's a great passage in Colossians that builds on this. You don't need to turn there. It says in Colossians 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The point there is, very simply put, it's all about the Lord. It's all about him. It's not about us. It's not about our wants. It's not about our desires. It's not about what we feel is best. God is higher than me. All his ways are higher than me. And I have to trust that. So since I trust that, it takes us right in to verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now those are some very famous verses, and we go to those verses a lot. Problem is a lot of times we don't go to those verses in the context of what they are The context of those verses are verses 30 through 32 of chapter 11. I'm disobedient. I need mercy Verses 33 through 35 Who am I to figure out my own will and path in life because verse 36 all things deal with the Lord? Now it makes sense since I know all these things verse 1 of chapter 12 I beseech you I urge you I beg with you I plead with you Go to the Lord and ask Him what His will is for your life. See, too often we look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 and we look at it as a suggestion. I don't know how many times people have come up to me and said, I don't know what my will is or what God wants me to do. Hey, go to Romans 12, 1 and 2 here. As you give your life over to the Lord, He will reveal to you what your plan is. The full context of it is go back. You're disobedient. You're a sinner just like me. Who are we to know anything? Verses 33 through 35, God has a great plan. His wisdom is better on us. Trust it. Once you see the full passage of the Scripture, it makes perfect sense. Verse 1, I'm His. So therefore, I present my body to Him, a living sacrifice. I willfully give my life over to Him in all ways and all things, and I say, Lord, lead me, guide me, direct me, because it's nothing to do with me. It all is You. How do I know that? Because verse 36 tells me that. It's all about Him. And then when I give my life completely over to Him, verse 2 I can find out what that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. Too often we make decisions based on what we want and what we think. We feel that that job is the best opportunity. We feel that that house, we feel that that person, that ministry is the best fit for us. And then we just ask God to quickly say it's okay. We don't stop and say, well, what happens if that's not the Lord's will? Well, it has to be the Lord's will. You know why? Because I prayed. I prayed and said, Lord, if they offer me that job, then make that your will. So therefore, since they offer me the job, it has to be, his will, because if it wasn't His will, they wouldn't have offered me the job. That's not the way it works. We don't get to tell God what to do. See, that prayer is basically telling God what to do. Well, if I'm going to make an offer on that house. If they accept the offer, that's obviously God's will for us to move there, because if they reject the offer, it's not God's will. Maybe not. Maybe they're offering you the job, and it's not God's will. Maybe they're accepting the offer, and it's not God's will. Well, how am I supposed to know? See, people come in and say, well, how am I supposed to know God's will? Go back to the verse 2. Have you given your body over as a living sacrifice to the Lord? Oh, yeah. No, seriously. Have you given absolutely every area of your life over to the Lord so that way when he says, whatever I call you to do, you're going to do? That's a big statement. It's a family that I used to know real well when I came out here years ago, and everything looked pretty good on the outside, but things were revealed on the inside that there was a lot of problems in the marriage, personal choices, life, kids, et cetera. It was a really rocky spot. These things came to light. We were counseling with them. We were doing um, um, counseling with them and helping them through it, and things were starting to get patched back together. Still a little rocky, but things are looking good. Well, there was an opportunity that popped up with this person's job, and I could tell that this was just not a good opportunity. It wasn't. And so I remember this guy coming to me saying, hey, here's the situation. This is what we're going to do. We're going to move to this area, and we're going to do this because there's this great opportunity, and we're really excited about it. And I said, you think this is God's will? And this is what I remember this guy said. He goes, I have worked hard at this job. I have waited for this opportunity. I have waited for this to fall into my lap. I'm not going to turn this down. Why would I not take it? It's the best thing for our family. It's the best choice. See, here's the problem. Go back to verse 1 of Romans 12. We give our body over to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Look at verse 2 then. Do not be conformed to this world. See, conforming to the world sometimes doesn't make sense to the Lord. That, that job, conforming to the world, makes sense. It's more money. That's a bigger title. It's a better, quote-unquote, position. The world says, why would you turn that down? God says, turn it down. Lord, why? Why would you not want me to reap the fruit of my labor? I've waited for this position. I've waited for this promotion. I've waited for this success. God says, I see the big picture. Those extra hours, you're going to lose your family. That extra money is going to cause problems. That extra devotion you're going to give to your job, your wife's going to feel left out. It's not worth it. Don't conform to the world. Well, this guy... Waited for this position, waited for this job, took the job, took everything. His life, his kids, his marriage has completely fallen apart. I don't say this to say, I told you so because I don't mean it in any that way whatsoever. I say this to say, if we conform ourselves to the world is going to run into problems whatever you decide to worship at the altar of that becomes your life so if you worship at the altar of conforming to the world well then you're going to become like the world and you're going to be disappointed you're never going to know what god's will is for your life you're not going to be transformed and there's going to be an emptiness in your spiritual life and these people are going to talk about these deep relationships with the lord and they're going to sit there and say why don't i have that because you're conforming to the world not to what the lord has in your life look at the people in the bible who are the most on fire for the lord They were a strange group of people. Strange, strange cookies. According to the world, they were foolish. According to the world, they were strange. According to 1 Corinthians 1, God says you are foolish. The Bible says we are a peculiar group of people. We are. And the way the world says to go sometimes does not match up to the way the Word of God says to go. So how are you supposed to know what the Lord wants you to do? Well... How do we not conform ourselves to the world? How do we transform ourselves? How do we know what the perfect will of God is? Well, the first verse that comes to my mind is John 10, 27. It says, my sheep hear my voice. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I've already shared with you about sheep. Cute, not that smart. At the last pastor's conference I went to, there was a group of people there that were talking about a, a discipleship program they do. That when you show up to go to this in-depth discipleship program, they literally hand you a sheep. You're actually physically responsible to take care of, The lamb. To take it with you, to to feed it. You literally take care of this sheep. To teach you what it means when God says, I'm your shepherd. To teach you what it means that we are sheep. And once again, if anybody's been around sheep before, that's not an easy task. And then what happens is that this discipleship program, after a while, after you've been with your sheep for so long, they take all the sheep and put them in one big area, and guess what they do? You're responsible by your voice to call your sheep out. To teach you that your sheep hear your voice. So that's what God is trying to teach us is amongst everything that's going on in the world, all the junk of TV, radio, work, and gossip and everything, can you still hear the voice of the Lord? Because the Bible says, John 10 27, my sheep hear my voice. And I'm not necessarily talking about the literal, audible voice of God. I'm talking about the Lord speaking to your heart. If you're sitting there saying, I don't know what God's will is, I keep praying and I'm not hearing any answers. Are you really listening? Prayer is more listening than it is talking. Are you opening yourself up to hearing how the Lord speaks? Because if you make a list of how the Lord speaks, this is how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through prayer. And when I say prayer, I'm not talking the little 30-second. Lord, be with me today. Help me through my test today. It's a really difficult day. i got a tough time at work. Thank you, Lord, for everything you do, and keep me safe, and I love you. Amen. It's not prayer. That's making a list to give to your secretary on what to do or something like that. That's not prayer in any way whatsoever. Prayer is, Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? I'm here to serve you. How can I? And then I sit and I listen. You know how hard that is to sit and listen and wait? It's tough. How about through the Word? God speaks through His Word. When somebody comes into my office and says, I don't know what the Lord wants me to do. How's your prayer life? Oh, not good. How's your time in the Word? Oh, not really good. I'll say, yeah, I really haven't seen you a lot in church. Yeah, it's just not working out. You're you're closing up every opportunity you have for the Lord to speak. He speaks through prayer. He speaks through the Word. He speaks through the message on Sunday morning. He speaks through the time of worship on Sunday morning. And He speaks through the fellowship time. That's why we have this 10-minute break for you to talk to other people. Because you never know, something you're struggling with, you may start talking to someone and you find out they're struggling with the same thing. And you find out how the Lord is helping them through it, and therefore you have your answer. I will tell you right now, I've had more answers to prayer through fellowship time than what you can imagine. People come up and they may not even realize they're giving me an answer. They're like, hey, I was looking at this the other day, and it was really neat that the Lord did this. And I'm like, Lord, that's what I needed to hear. But if you close off your time at church, you close off your time in fellowship, you close off your time in the Word, you close off your time in prayer, you close off your time in worship... How do you expect the Lord to speak to you? That's how He chooses to speak to us. Or, I run into people that have one good thing. They're really great prayer warriors. So basically it's like saying, the only way you can reach me, Lord, is through prayer. That's the equivalent of saying, just email me, don't call me, or something like that. I'll give you one opportunity for you to reach me. We live in a society today where I talk to people like, hey, you know, you can call me, you can text me, you can email me. We have so many different ways to get a hold of people, but yet when it comes to spiritual matters, we say, Lord, I, I, I'll just do this, I'm just going to read. Well, maybe the Lord wants to speak to you through prayer, maybe He wants to speak to you through the church, wants to speak through worship. And sometimes, to be honest with prayer, we just talked about a couple Sundays ago, you don't get your answers in prayer right away. Daniel talked about how he prayed over something and it took 21 days to get the answer. Some of you have been praying about things, and you've waited weeks, months, years for that answer from the Lord. Why isn't God answering me? He is answering. He's saying, just wait. As we've said out here numerous times, God answers every prayer with a yes, a no, or just wait. Just wait are the hard ones. I can handle a no. I throw a little spiritual hissy fit for a while. Then I accept his will, and I move on. I can handle yes, because obviously I like to get what I want to get. Just wait? Come on, Lord, hurry up. Do you not hear me? Yeah, he hears you. He's saying, just wait. Wait, do you trust me? Do we trust him when it comes to that? And then when he reveals what his will is to you, how do you know it's his will? Well, a couple things. First off, his will will always line up with biblical truth. It will line up what the Bible says. I've had people over the years come up to me and I'm not going to repeat what they've said because it's funny but it's also sad. Well, the Lord led me to do this. No, he didn't. He's not going to lead you to do something that does not line up with his word. Well, I really feel like he wants me to do this. Is not going to lead you against something that does not line up with his word. That's just a fact. Well, how do you know that? Because I know what his word says. Or the next one is they really feel led to do something, but it doesn't line up with the nature of Jesus. I'm going to go talk to that guy. I'm going to tell him what I think and what I feel. Now, come on. Is that what the nature of Jesus is? Whatever God leads you, it will line up with biblical truth. It will line up with the nature of Jesus, and it will be Christ-like. So those are how we know it's of his will. So if you are given an answer, this is God's will. If it's not lined up with the Bible, it's not God's will. If it doesn't line up with the nature of Jesus, it's not God's will. You will know His will through being in the time with Him in prayer, being in time with Him in worship, in the time with Him in the message, and with the fellowship and daily devotions with the Lord. Do you realize Christ set the example for us? Every day He got up and spent time with the Lord alone in the morning before anybody else was. And if Jesus Himself needed and wanted that time alone with the Father, how much more do we need and want that time? What an example He set for us. Now, why don't we do this? Because we live in such a fast taste society it's that mcdonald's mentality i want my food and i want it quick sometimes you got to sit and wait for the lord to answer to speak and we have to train ourselves to do that and that is really difficult for some personalities to do but you know what that's how the lord answers if you just give the lord a few seconds in prayer how do you expect him to answer sit and wait upon the lord and he'll give you that answer he will reveal it in his time and his way but what happens if you got to make that quick answer you need to know tomorrow morning I want that job. They need to know tomorrow morning what they offer. They need to know tomorrow morning about this. Or they need to know now. I mean, what's backtrack? This is why you spend a regular time with the Lord on a regular basis because when those situations pop up, that needs that quick answer. You spent so much time in prayer and with the Lord that you already know what His will would be in that situation. You already know what His Word would say. You would already know what the nature of Christ is. Even though you didn't know the problem that was going to arise, you didn't know the question that was coming up, you knew by just spending time with the Lord, it prepares you for those situations that are coming. And so therefore, you're ready. So when they say, I need you to do this, you can stop and say, no, wait a second. This is the first I heard this. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I know what the Bible says about this situation. And this is the right answer here. Because I've spent that time with the Lord. Therefore, I am prepared and ready. And I know what his will is. And what type of will is it? Go back to verse 2 again. It's good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. It may not line up with what I think may not wind up with what i like or what i want but lord i trust it because i am a foolish disobedient person that just needs to seek you in all ways and all things a couple passages i want to close with and we're done can you go to james 4 please james 4 this is one of the most straightforward passages on seeking and knowing what the lord wants you to do for your life i love the book of james because he's straightforward and he's blunt james 4 verse 13 Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead you also say, as the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. How straightforward is that? Just be honest, how many times do you have plans in life? Well, this, this is what I'm going to do. This is really where it looks like I want to go and what I do. This is a great opportunity, etc., etc. And we make this wonderful plan. And then we kind of have this brief moment of, I should probably check with God about this. Lord, there's this great opportunity at work that I accepted, and it's a new position that's going to be really wonderful, and I start tomorrow. Could you bless it, please? You never asked him. Or or we do that quick little ask. Lord, if it's your will, just pray you take care of it. And really what you're almost doing is like walking out the door with the key, saying, bye, Mom and Dad, I'll be back in a little bit. You've already made the decision. You're not asking for his approval. You're not even asking for his opinion. You already know it's a great idea. And how do you know it's a great idea? Because you're the smartest person that's ever lived on this earth. And so therefore, you know exactly what's best for your life. Even though we just spent 40 minutes saying how we don't know anything. But we know in this situation, it has to be God's will because it's so wonderful. Why else would it fall right in my lap unless it was God's will? Because sometimes those things fall right into our lap and they're not God's. Well, in fact, in Deuteronomy, a passage that takes more than a few minutes to talk about so we can't get into it today, the Lord actually says, I will allow false prophets to come into your midst for you to test them and prove them to see if you're going to listen to me or them. Whoa, Lord, you're allowing false prophets to come into the midst of Israel? He goes, yeah, because are they just going to hear what they say and say, well, it must be of God? Or are they going to stop and really listen to me? Great passage that bookends this one in James 4. You don't need to turn there. It's Proverbs uh, 19, 21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. Isn't that true? How many times have you had plans in your heart? I've had plans in my heart. Well, this is what I'm going to do. No, it's the Lord's counsel that stands. It's the Lord's will that matters. That's all that matters. And if you're sitting here saying, how do I know his will? It goes back to the basics. Time in the word, time in prayer, time in worship, time in fellowship, time in church. I'm doing all those things and I'm still not getting the answer. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Don't, don't get so frustrated that you just start making decisions on your own. Don't reach to the point of frustration where you say, well, you know what, Lord, you're not moving quick enough, and I need to do this. That's one of the most dangerous places you can be. It's not about us. It's about Him, and that's all that matters. Last passage I'm going <laughs> to share with you. Jeremiah 29:11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. One translation says, For I know the plans that I have for you. God has a plan and a purpose for us, and he will reveal that to us in his time, at his way, and what's best. And as he reveals that to us, we then know, Lord, I'm going to walk in your perfect will, in your time frame, not according to my wisdom, not according to my knowledge, because we've already proven the fact I'm pretty foolish and disobedient. Lord, I trust you. The worship team wants to come forward here for the final song. If you're struggling with something and you really want some prayer, to you know what his will is, well... We don't have any wisdom. We can pray with you. We can encourage you. We can point you in the right direction. And if you have something you want to pray about, hey, don't be afraid to grab me on the way out or don't be afraid to grab Renee or Rich here on the way out and say, hey, can you just pray for me about this? I just want to know what his will is. We'll seek the Lord with you for it. I tell you this, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking, keep praying. It's really easy to reach a point of frustration saying the Lord isn't answering. It's really easy to reach a point of frustration saying the Lord keeps saying no. We have to trust that he knows the big plan and the big picture. Even though we may be frustrated about that, God knows what's best and we trust in that. We'll give this over to them for the final song. Have a word of prayer and let you guys go then.